Good morning, church. Yeah. Happy Mother's Day, moms. It is funny. I saw Justin out there kind of take a double take at the flowers and really look at them closely. Um, so it's actually even funnier that he's like, I don't know what kind of flowers they are. Like, really studied them too. Um, no, I, I was thinking, um, first of all, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans. That's where we're going to be this morning in Romans chapter 10. Uh, I was thinking about um, Mother's Day when I was a little kid, and um, we're, we're at the stage in life right now with uh, kids bringing home Mother's Day, like things from school, you know, like the projects and stuff. And I remember when I was a kid, um, when I was in kindergarten, I remember very distinctly, I was super proud of, it was a, like a, we colored and cut out teapots and teacups, and it said, tea for two, me and you. Still remember this? And, but here's the, here's the incredible thing about it. Like, you want to talk about kicking it up to the next level and really making it practical. There was a bag of tea, you see, stapled to the inside of each teacup. And so not only uh, was she going to get a nice card, but she was going to get a cup of tea as well, probably one that we could share. I was really, really, really pumped to give that to my mom when I was in kindergarten, and she kept it for a long time, and I was kind of sad when I was in high school, and I was helping my parents move, and I found it, and I was like, wait, you didn't drink the tea, you know? Like, <laughs> this was a whole thing, you know? And, she, and then she explained to me, like, you know, that it wasn't very good tea. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, but I love, we're at that stage of Mother's Day right now, and I, and, or in being parents, and I love it so much. I think it's like the best thing ever. Um, I want to um, read, uh, we're going to read this morning. Uh, we, I, my son leaned over to me after Justin was giving announcements, and he said, is it going to be a long sermon? Um, <laughs> and I was like, no, no, it's not. Um, but it probably will be. It always is. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 as we continue in our study in Romans this week. And we're going to read verses 1 through 15, and then we're going to dumb, uh, ju jump right into these, dive right into these. So Romans 10, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'll, um, we'll put it up on the screen there behind, you, behind me. Uh, this is Paul writing about, um, about the Israelites, about the Jewish Christians, about the Jewish people that he comes from culturally as he's writing to the church in Rome, which is made up of different kinds of Christians. He says this, starting in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 of Romans. He says, Brother, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I was thinking about children and um, something that children have in abundance, which is something Paul talks about here called zeal in the beginning of this passage when talking about his fellow Jews and his fellow Israelites. Uh, Some of the most wonderful things that children do for their parents. In fact, I I think on Mother's Day, it's a great day to remember this because, like, uh, you know, my daughter woke up this morning um, early and made breakfast for my wife. And, uh, but it was a little bit scary, you know, like, oh, wow, you did this. Okay. Uh, everything's fine. Okay. All right. That's, that's impressive. You know, it actually tasted good. She cleaned up and everything, but, uh, we were a little bit nervous, uh, until, you know, we realized everything was okay. Uh, but there's something about when kids really, really are excited about something and want to do a good thing that sometimes that can be wonderful. And sometimes their incredible zeal can be aimed just enough in the wrong direction um, to cause disastrous consequences. I was reading a a news story this week about an eight-year-old who um, has a four-year-old sister, a little boy who has a four-year-old sister, and their parents were sleeping, probably because they have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and um, they didn't want to wake their parents up, but they were hungry, um, and so wanting to do the right thing and wanting to take care of his little sister and do what he thought his parents would want for him to do the most, the eight-year-old got on YouTube and watched a bunch of videos on how to drive, and then he took his dad's keys and he drove his sister to McDonald's. And so the police got calls um, all over town, basically, about uh, two children driving in a car. And um, they apparently did really well. Apparently, they, like, didn't break any laws, like traffic laws or anything other than driving without a license, I guess. And uh, they said he stopped at the lights, he turned where he was supposed to turn, he gets to McDonald's, and the people at the drive, they thought it was some kind of a joke. They thought the parents were in the back seat, uh, but they were not in the back seat. They paid with a piggy bank and everything. And, um, and when the police came to the McDonald's, they were eating their Happy Meals, and and uh, the boy was crying, and he just said, I just didn't want to wake my parents up. I just, you know, was wanting to, you know, get my sister some food and then go back home. And so, of course, the police then, then they go, well, maybe this is like a case of neglect or something. Turns out they had already eaten three times that day. Um, and so they said, there was no evidence of neglect. This kid was just trying to do the wrong thing and was aimed a little bit in the wrong direction in how he went about doing it. Now, I hear something like that, and I go, what better example is there of someone with tremendous amount of zeal to do something that is good, and yet not quite doing what we would want them to do? I think kids seem to be good at doing that with the best of intentions. When Paul talks about his his own Jewish people, uh, the culture, the group that he grew up in, the Israelites, God's original chosen people. When he talks about them, it is with tremendous fondness that he talks about them because he knows what it is to be one of them and he knows that they have the best of intentions. He says in the beginning of this passage, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. 
You see, the Israelites and the Jewish people, they get such a bad rap in the New Testament. They're like the religious ones that don't seem to care about the things that are right, or they're the ones that were the most against what Jesus was doing in his ministry. And Paul is here confronting and talking to a church in Rome that is comprised not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. And the hard reality is the fact that the the Jewish Christians um, were less receptive to the gospel than it seemed the Gentiles, which a Gentile is just a person who came from outside of the religious world. Or the way that Paul puts it here, which I think puts it so well, is they were not seeking to be righteous. So the Gentiles were not trying to be good people. They were not trying to be righteous people, and they found Jesus. And yet the Jews were desperately trying to be righteous people. They had such a zeal for God, and Paul himself was one of them even to the point of stoning other people, Christians, believing that they're doing this because it's what God wants them to do. Paul says, there is no question in my mind that they have tremendous zeal for the Lord, but that zeal that they have is not based on knowledge, he says. There were two kinds of Christians, for the most part, making up the churches in Rome. There were Gentiles and Jews. Now, in the year 49 AD, uh, Claudius, the emperor, uh, put forth an edict, and in that edict, he kicked all Jewish people out of Rome. You see, what had happened was these Christians, and what had gone on with Jesus and was happening after that, had started to stir the pot in these synagogues. There was this, this Christian movement that was starting to create tension. Well, the Jewish leaders were getting mad about this. And something interesting is that there was no real central authority over all the different Jewish synagogues in Rome. So Rome's a really big place, and there's all these different Jewish synagogues, and these Christians are coming into the synagogue saying, Jesus is the real Messiah, Jesus is the way, and everyone starts getting mad. Well, the the Roman leaders couldn't go to the Jewish leaders because there was no real Jewish leader and say, you've got to knock this off. And the Jewish leaders could never get it together enough to go to the Roman leader in a, in a, in a way that, that, that didn't make them seem like, uh, like rebellious and crazy. And so ultimately, in the year 49, Claudius the emperor says, you know what, I'm done with it. If you're a Jewish person, get out of Rome. So they kick all the Jewish people out of Rome. And then what happens years later, um, when a new emperor is in charge, is they're all allowed to come back in. Well, you would think that maybe the church would die at that point, right? These are the people that Jesus was a Jewish person. It started in the synagogues. If they kick all the Jewish people out of Rome, what's going to happen to this new thing called this Christian church? What happens is the Gentiles sort of step up. This group of people who were the non-religious ones, who were the second-rate ones, who were the ones that didn't come from God's chosen people, they were so receptive and open to the gospel that they came to faith in numbers And also, they weren't Jewish, so they were able to stay in Rome. When Paul is writing this letter, it is to a church that is made up predominantly of Gentile Christians. But it's not just because um, they were the only ones left in Rome and they thrived. It was because everybody knew at this point, at least Paul seems to take it for obvious truth, that the Gentiles were more open to what Jesus was talking about. There was something about them that they could hear what Jesus was saying, whereas the Jewish leaders just couldn't do it in the Jewish people. Paul is lamenting this. He's saying, my own people, they seem so closed off to the grace of God. Why are they? Why are they so closed off to it? 
And it's not really all that hard to understand when you, when you know what it's like to be a part of a religious community. Because even, uh, you know, at the first point at which a young person in the church hears the gospel itself, the good news that through faith in Christ we can be saved, that we are justified by nothing but faith in him and what he has done, that that good news, even at the earliest of age when you hear it, is coming after probably you've heard all this other stuff. You've heard about the Ten Commandments, and you've heard about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and you've heard about David and Goliath, and you've heard about the flood and all this other stuff. And you know that you're supposed to be good and that God wants you to do that, and there are these things you're supposed to do that you know people talk to you about. And so by the time you hear the gospel and you're adding it to this other stuff and you're trying to make sense of all of it, it's very, very easy as a religious person to have a hard time understanding how grace alone is how we are saved. It seems like the longer you're a part of a religious community, the easier it is to miss some of what Jesus said that hits so clearly with the outsiders. You see, what happens is you hear so much stuff when you're in the church, when you're in a group of religious people. You hear and you hear and you hear, and there's so much stuff to hear, and there's so much stuff to learn, and you learn pretty quickly on. It's, it's so easy to just sit and listen. It's so easy to just hear all of it and say, okay, I got it, right? There has to be something else that tells us that a person is, you know, real, right? Something else that tells us that a person believes it. Something else that tells us that a person actually cares about it. How in the world do we know the ones who are serious about it and the ones who aren't? Well, the Jewish people took the law of God, the restrictions that God gave his people as a way of having blessing and living in truth, and they said, this is how we'll know if someone has genuine faith. We'll know they have real faith and that they're not just listening and hearing all this stuff because of how they act, how they live, what it is that they do. They said, if you obey the rules, if you obey the traditions, then you are really one who is saved. You hear and you begin obeying. You hear and you do. This is why Paul says that, that what they were ignorant of here is he says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, if you were to go back and to the very beginning of our time in Romans, all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul talks about the gospel, and he says... In it, the righteousness of God comes to us. And what we talked about way back in the beginning of Romans was we talked about how this concept that Paul says, the righteousness of God, is very different from how we think of righteousness. Because it is this thing that actually exists outside of us. If you want to be righteous, there's only one way it's ever going to happen. It's going to be because God's righteousness came to you. It is not going to be because you produced righteousness yourself, offered it up to God, and then he really was like, you're a good one. You're one of the good ones. Good job. You're in. Let's go find some other good ones. The righteousness of God, says Paul, is something they were totally ignorant to. They couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that there is a goodness that is outside of us that we must receive rather than that we must achieve within ourselves. It just seems so counterintuitive to the Jewish people because of their knowledge of the law for so long. Paul said, because they're ignorant of this thing, their zeal, their passion, which is so good, is not with knowledge, he says. It is zeal without knowledge. And zeal without knowledge 
we know from history can be incredibly dangerous. It leads to fanaticism. It leads to radical things. It leads to pain and suffering. And most of all, it can lead to people simply not understanding that Jesus is what's supposed to be at the heart of this faith they hear so much about. The law says, good news, you're justified because of how you've been living and the things you've been doing. If you want to know why it's so hard for us not to live by the law, it's that statement right there. How much do we want to wake up each day and say, good news, I'm justified because of how I've been living and what I've been doing up until this point. Paul says, that's not the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is something that comes to me from God, so I better get good at receiving rather than trying to accomplish something on my own. This zeal that the Israelites have is something that Paul is lamenting. Instead, uh, what you do, uh, there's two different approaches that you can take when you have zeal. You can say, uh, because of our passion, we're going to try to come up with things people can do to show that they're serious, or there's another way that you deal with it, which Paul highlights. He simply says it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is it. This is how you become saved. This is how you become a Christian. This is the way you go from death to life. All you must do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Believe that it is what he does and not what you do that saves you. You go, wait a second. So these guys have a system built on how you actually live and what you do. These guys have a system built on saying things and feeling or believing things, uh, which one of these is going to be more reliable, right? Which one of these is going to be easier to identify in another person? I mean, your mouth and your heart, let's talk about the two things that get people in the most trouble these days, right? Or any day since the beginning of time, right? You're telling me that what makes a person really a person of faith is just the things that they profess about God and how they feel or believe in their heart? How on earth can we possibly monitor something like that? How can we know how well people are really doing? That's pretty frustrating, it sounds like. He says, you say it with your mouth. Anyone can do that. You believe it in your heart. Anyone can say they did that. God knows. God knows. Yikes. This now isn't about how well I'm behaving. This is about whether or not I truly believe. Paul says that the response is this. In all of the things that we can hear about the truth of, of what the Bible says about the gospel, the question is this, do we really believe it? We assume that because we agree with knowledge or information, because we agree with facts, we go, no, I agree with that, that sounds true, that sounds good, I agree with that, that we believe those things. Try believing something then you'll see how hard it is to believe much of the time. This last uh, couple of weeks ago, I was just having a really rough day, and I was just feeling like everything was against me, feeling like a real failure. And um, I opened up um, my, my Bible app um, on my iPad, and I hadn't used it in a little while since I had been preparing a sermon um, for Easter. And so I opened it up, 
And I'm not saying I hadn't used my Bible in that long. I'm just saying that iPad, okay? All right, there you go. I read my Bible every day. You don't have to worry. Um, I, I read it, and, uh, and I open it up, and the, the first verse that it's on is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I'm like, I read it, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> like, that is the furthest from how I feel right now. Now, here's the deal. I know you're all going to leave now because you're like, wait a second. If I was here on Easter, I'm pretty sure you gave a sermon on that, and you seemed to believe it pretty hard. And you're saying, we needed to believe it. You're saying, everybody should believe it. Why don't we believe this? Why don't more people say it more often? And I was like, this feels like the, la- this feels like the furthest thing from the world I'm living in right now. And then I'm like, well, I'm sure if I keep reading, I don't know, I don't totally remember all this. I'm going to keep reading. Maybe it'll get a little better. No, it gets worse because then it talks about how much God is for us and how nothing is against us and how we can know that God is for us and how there are no, and I'm like, this is not how I feel today. I do not feel like God is for me. I do not feel when I look at the world around me, like God is saying, see, I'm there with you. I'm keeping things going well. Not how I felt. You can agree with something. You can even, like, think it one day and then find yourself weeks later because of the circumstances of life, because of the things that you're facing, or because the rubber has really met the road, as we say. And you can go, do I really believe this now? You see, it is in the moments that it's hardest for us to believe the truths about God that we find out if we believe the truths about God. And it is in those moments that we then begin to believe the truths about God. You all know how this is probably. You hear something, you're like, yeah, absolutely, let's move on. A few weeks later, you hear something, you're like, no way, not a chance. Because you're actually dealing with that thing right now. We could hear a lot of stuff. We can agree with a lot of things. But Paul knows that the truth is we must simply believe. And so as Christians, we continue to go back to the gospel as often as we can and say, am I believing this thing today? Because if I am believing this thing today, then how I live will not have to be led, will not have to just be constantly restricted by lists and lists of rules, or, or by, by guilt and trying to accomplish things for God, or by trying to be better than other people, or by trying to identify another person or group of people that I can be against so I can feel like I'm doing something well. If I truly believe what the gospel says today, then the way I live will simply be the way God is calling me to live. Paul is saying that all we must do is believe, but this was, as Matt said last week, a stumbling block even. This is where Jesus himself became a stumbling block for the very people who were trying to follow him because they wanted something else. What Paul is identifying in the first part of this passage that we're in this morning is he's reminding us yet again of why what I love about Paul is that he's not writing off these people who he's saying don't seem so open to the gospel. He's saying, I'm one of them. I get them. I know how passionate they are for what is good and the ways of God, but there's something going on within them that is making them so closed off to trusting in Jesus alone. So we read that and we would be wise not to say, I'm glad I'm not like them, but to say, how can I possibly not be closed off to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of this one simple fact, which is that righteousness comes from God? 
because of what Jesus has done. Righteousness isn't something I can produce myself. That's, that's what Jesus meant, by the way, when he said, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, right? You read that, you go, I don't believe that, right? You're like, that sounded good one day. I was like, doing fine. I was on vacation. I was in Hawaii. I read that in my little devotional. I was like, this is a great thing to read today. I couldn't agree with it more. You hear it again a couple weeks later, you're like, I don't think so. You even know what a burden is? That doesn't even make sense. The reason Jesus says those words to us is because he's reminding us, like, righteousness is not something that I have come to expect you to accomplish on your own. I'm here to lift off the burden and the chains to let you experience freedom in what God has done. This is such good news. This is the gospel. Paul explains so perfectly the gospel, explains so perfectly why it might be hard for so many to believe it, even those that we're the most familiar with and comfortable around. And what, what is interesting is that, you know, because we spend a lot of time around people who are of the faith, people who are religious people, people who are in a group of religious people, then it's easy for us to believe, man, if we have such a hard time hearing this thing and getting it, man, imagine how hard of a time people outside the walls of this church might be. And Paul is the one saying, hey, you'd actually be surprised. They might be a little bit more open to it than you think. This is where Paul moves on at the end of our passage that we're going to jump to. And he says this to them. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? If all we must do is believe, how then will people call on him if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul asked this question. He asked this series of questions because he doesn't seem to think that people are fully understanding the part they play in others hearing this good news so that they can come and believe. It's, Paul is writing this to a church that's a very strong church. He has said in the beginning, I have heard of your faith. I'm encouraged by your faith. I've told others about your faith. As a church, overall, you guys are doing really well. And it is to that church that he is now saying to them, after reminding them of the good news of the gospel, saying, but guys, like, let's ask ourselves the question, how will people believe unless there are those who do these things? The first thing he says is he says, if they're going to believe, they have to hear. There are so many who have not heard the gospel because what they have heard is the gospel mixed with something else. Or what they have seen is the name of Jesus mixed with something else. Or they've got experiences with church or with religion that make them think this is the last thing that could bring freedom or that could help me actually be who God's created me fully to be. So I must look everywhere but here if I'm to have my real identity, if I'm to really be who God created me to be. There is no way that freedom can be found here. If people are to believe, they must hear from people who understand the gospel themselves, whose lives are being changed by it daily. They must hear about it. And how are they going to hear about it, he says, unless someone preaches? You go, oh, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Ed, you're stuck now because that's your job, right? You're the one preaching. Well, this is where I use my advanced knowledge and understanding of languages which I can really do all the time, right? And just go, nope, that's not what the Greek says. You know, and then you go look it up. You're like, wait, that is what it said. He just says that about stuff he doesn't like. No, that's not true. What the Greek says here is that this word for preach 
is the word herald. Herald, not like the name, H-A-R, but herald, like a person who goes out to preach good news. Like there's a guy named Harold who's supposed to go around. That's way easier. If your name's Harold, you're in charge of evangelism. Everyone else, we are off the hook. No, that's not what it's saying. This word herald is the word that is used for a person who is bringing news to people out in the public square. So think about this. He's saying, uh, he's saying, now the reason that it's translated as preach is because the context he's talking about is the news they're giving is the news of the gospel. And that is the heart of all preaching. But what he's saying is, how will people hear if someone isn't going out into the public square, into where everyone is, outside of your house church there in Rome, if people aren't willing to go out there and shared the good news. A person who heralded good news was a person who um, often came from a battle. Uh, you know, we talk about this oftentimes, a gospel, an evangelist, a person, a bringer of the good news. That was the word given for the person who, when a battle was won, they were, they were sent, they were very fast, they were sent from the battlefield back to where everyone lived to share the good news that we won the battle to share the news of what had already been done. That person heralded that good news, gave that good news to all the people back in town to let them know the good things have happened. There is nothing more, more worth celebrating than that good news. He says, how are people going to hear if others aren't out there sharing that good news with them? He's not saying in here. If someone's not preaching from the stage, right? Our understanding for so often, for so long has been that the way people hear about the truth of Jesus is they come to church and that's where they hear about it, right? We, we do something and we get people to come and somebody who's really skilled is going to tell them about it in a way that they're not going to be able to ignore what they're hearing in the truth of the Bible. And the reality is that what Paul is talking about is not the leader of the Roman church, the person in charge of the teaching time out of the word. He's saying these people will not hear unless someone, unless you all are willing to go out and are willing to herald that good news to them. But he then says this, how are they to preach unless they are sent? And this is where the rub really comes in. What Paul is saying to the church here is this good news that is so amazing. You are all being sent out with this good news. Why does evangelism, why does the sharing of the gospel so often end in awkward conversations that are forced about topics that are way too intense to have standing at your front door or in a very short interaction with someone in public uh, because when we aren't actually sent, when we don't go fully, then all evangelism can ever be about is just sort of, we call it drive-by. And the idea is like, uh, you talk to a person here, you say something here, you feel bad or your church did something, and so you say something over here, and then you're like, that's good, problem solved, task is done, I can check it off the list. That is not a person who is sent, really sent. A person who is sent is a person who says, I will go in the way that we think of as a missionary. But Paul's not sending the people of the Roman church out to all the four corners of the world. He is sending to people, he's saying to them, you're all going out and you're all sent so that you can all preach the good news so that people can hear it, so that they can believe and so that they can come to faith. 
And I have talked to so many in our church who have heard the call of God to be sent, like right where they are. People who have gone to senior centers daily and said, God called me to this place to be with these senior citizens as we hang out every day to bring them Jesus. People who have said, I, God has called me to the people that live on my street. God has called me to the people that are at my school. God has called us to the team that we spend every night of the week and most weekends with. That we're not just there to do something completely disconnected from God and our faith. That these places that we are are places that we can choose to also be sent with the gospel. Or they're places where we can say, maybe I'll just go to church and then they'll take care of all that stuff for me. And I know how Jake feels. The truth is when we talk about being sent, it can be very difficult because we often don't want to do it. We don't like the idea that like God would expect us to actually be the ones to share the news of the gospel with other people. It's uncomfortable to us. It's a job that most of us don't really like. Now, that may sound really cynical to you, but as I've talked with many Christians, I do think that's the sense that I've gotten, the idea that there are some who have the gift to do that, and then everyone else just kind of doesn't. There was a show that was on TV many years ago, and I got so into it. It was like one of my favorite shows ever, and it was a show called Dirty Jobs. I love this show so much, not just because the host of the show, Mike Rowe, is so entertaining. But this guy went out and uh, decided that he was going to go out and work for a day or for a few days with people who had undesirable jobs. This wasn't just your typical, like, I'm going to go to work with someone and show people what they do and they can better understand it. Uh, He went to landfills. He went into sewers. He went and shoveled up stables, uh, shoveled and cleaned stables. He went and worked in coal mines. He went and did some of the uh, things that... Like, most people would go, never in a million years would I want to do that as a job. And what began as this incredibly entertaining, it was a very entertaining show about a guy who would go be a sanitation worker, a mortuary embalmer, an oil rig worker, a dairy farm laborer, a crime scene cleaner. Who cleans up crime scenes? An Alaskan fisherman. Uh, he would go on these jobs, and after a while, it became sort of a crusade of his, a crusade to show the rest of America that the most important jobs that we depend on are often jobs that people don't find desirable. No better could you sum it up than simply this, when there is not someone to shovel all the poop, guess what's going to happen, everybody? It's going to pile up. And it's going to stink. When people don't do the jobs that must be done, it's going to start to stink. Now, I bring this up because I think that as crass as it may seem to you, that for many, the task of being sent to others with the good news of the gospel is an undesirable job, kind of a consolation prize, if anything, that we don't really want to do and we think will only make our lives harder and more difficult. What you come to see as you watch this show that I love about it is these aren't really the worst jobs in the world. That people can really enjoy what they do. They can find great fulfillment in what they do and the people that they work alongside in doing it. 
The truth is, any time that I have spent reaching others with the gospel has certainly not been easy, but has been by far the most fulfilling in my own personal relationship with Jesus. As I've seen God use me to do something much bigger than me, and I will say this, and maybe, hopefully you might agree, that when you look at the world around you, and you look at the way things are, and you look at some of the people that you feel like you have to deal with on a daily basis, uh, you might ask yourself, what does the world need more of? Uh, what does the world need, really, to fix all of its problems? Does it need a better leader? Does it need better programs? Does it need more opportunity? Does it need some new thing that we're going to come up with technologically because we always do such a great job of fixing problems with technology, not making things worse? Or is it that what people need, what the world needs, is the gospel? It is a righteousness that cannot come from in here but can only be received. That our God has righteousness for us. We must only receive it. How many people need to hear this message and know this thing? What would that do for our communities and our neighborhoods and our world? It would make it better. No question. But I think for many of us, because it seems like a hard job, a difficult thing to do, the last thing that we feel qualified to do, the result is uh, reaching others with the gospel is sort of left to a few. Or it's left to churches or things like that. And it doesn't happen effectively that way. That's not how Paul told the church to do it then. And so what happens is it starts to stink because no one's doing the jobs that need to be done. But it's hard. It's difficult. There's risk involved. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how people are going to feel. You're like, I don't know that I want this in my relationships. I don't want to be, you know, somebody who's like that person. I don't know that I have the energy to be about other people and what the world needs or what they need right now. I can barely do enough for myself or my own family. Which I think is kind of a crazy way of, of, of thinking because when you think about it, with my own family, who I'm first and foremost called to be sent to with the gospel, to bring the gospel to, not to produce Little people, for example, with my kids who can show some kind of righteousness that they can offer up to God and he'll be impressed with, but instead that I'm sent to my own children, to my own family, to my own spouse, to my own, uh, the people closest to me with this good news. It's hard to do. It's scary. It's exhausting. It's unpredictable. But as the great Theodore Roosevelt once said, not this. <laughs> You're like, wait a second. Not only do you not know Greek. Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, and even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poorer spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the great twilight that neither knows victory or defeat. To find ourselves living our lives in this great twilight where we neither know victory or defeat because we're too afraid of how overwhelming the task ahead may seem. Why do you think 
The church is a group of people called to gather so that we can be ascending ground with the gospel, knowing that we're not alone, but that we're, we have one another. And what is the great thing that can come? What is the great thing that can happen? Paul says this. He says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That even if only a few respond, that to those few who respond and see the truth of the gospel, the work that you have done, the things that you have done, is more valuable to them than anything else that can ever be done for them. For those of you who are believers here today, if you reflect back on where you heard the gospel, on who brought it to you, on who brought that into your life, and what the cost may have been to them to do that thing, my hope is that you would think of that person or that group of people or that community and that you would say, blessed are the feet of those that brought that good news to me of the victory that was won for me. I can hold no one in any higher regard than as a person who has given life like that to me so that I can give it to others around me, the hope in Jesus. We can do this or we can spend our lives filled with zeal, but zeal for some of the wrong things. Because when we choose not to be about bringing the truth of the gospel to others, do you know what we will choose to be about? Other stuff. And that doesn't mean that we may not be zealous for those things. But we may find ourselves getting zealous about being the biggest church, getting zealous about following the best rules, being zealous about having people who look the best, being zealous for the way we want others to be, being zealous to fight problems that we see out there. But all of that zeal, misdirected, can place us in the same place as Paul's own kinspeople, the people he speaks about, the Jews, when he says, I know how much they seek to please God. But because their zeal does not have with it knowledge of what righteousness really is, then it is misplaced and they cannot hear. May we have zeal and knowledge. May we bring that to others and know that God will use that to bless his kingdom and grow it. Let's pray.